Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Coming up, the story of Everton's latest escape from relegation and how they'll be looking to avoid it happening again next season. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. The club that was promoted in 1954 will remain elite until 2024 and the fans swarm on. Joining us today, uh, two men who look absolutely shattered, Greg O'Keefe and Patrick Boyland, who've uh, shared the heavy load of covering Everton uh, for The Athletic. So the intro there, Greg said, we'll look to we'll look to next season in a moment. But I just want to go back to last season and compare it to this season because the reaction at the end of the game on Sunday didn't seem as joyous as it did a year before when they stayed up. There was more anger this time. That's right. It was nowhere near as joyous. It was the brief bit of relief just to get it done. There was inevitably a pitch invasion. I think sometimes that kind of all of a sudden that that tension and and nearly a hundred minutes of just agony ending there's just a release and and unfortunately that's how it came about but joy or happiness was very short-lived it did very quickly turn to anger and it you know anger has been a, a key part of how the fans have felt for months now but at various times they put it aside to get behind the team and to try and you know sort of generate a positive energy around the the, the players and the manager and when it was all over, you're right, it was a um, chance of sack the board, I think, within about five minutes of, of their last whistle. Not quite the sort of unadulterated delight. And, and there, were, there were lots of differences as well from uh, the Crystal Palace game last season. But one being that it went absolutely to the wire, if you remember, it took them a game but one last season. So although they're very, very close, uh, they did kind of have that comfort blanket, if you like, of going away to Arsenal on the last day. And this time it was all or bust on that that final game, and as ever they made it, uh, they made everyone sweat. I thought, as well as the fans, Patrick, I actually thought those involved, whether that be players or Sean Dyche, were very sort of. Maybe I'd go as far as saying downbeat, but certainly just more realistic. They didn't. They didn't seem in interviews afterwards that much. There wasn't that much of a celebratory nature in the interviews either. No, I, th- I think you're spot on there. I looked at some of the interviews Jordan Pickford and Connor Cody did, and they were talking about how they can't let this happen again. And that's collectively, as, as a unit, as a club, they can't allow this to happen again. And I suppose that's the concern here for players, supporters, everybody associated with Everton, is that this is the second successive season they've done this. I think as we mentioned in in our piece on the, on the season as a whole, They've almost become a perennial relegation candidate. They're a club. Now you expect to be embroiled in that dogfight 
come the start of every season. And it's not like the finance has been there or is there to completely catapult them out of that danger and away from that danger. I dare I say, even if they did have that money, I wouldn't necessarily just assume they would spend it wisely. Anyway, that, that one one of the main lessons from the very early days under the majority shareholder, Fahad Mashiri, was that Everton did not spend money wisely. So there, there was kind of that, that was the tone after the game. And I think it was also quite telling that Sean Dyche gave a very long press conference afterwards where he spoke about realism, where he spoke about the need to get, to go back to basics, to get back, I think he called Everton an earthy club in the past that had, and almost seemed to suggest that it had lost direction. Now, that's something a lot of people that have covered Everton or have watched Everton over this period would agree with and associate with, because I think there is a general sense that the club has gone in the wrong direction and has kind of been rudderless now. So so what you've seen on the pitch is almost a direct result of what's happened off it over, over the last four or five years. We'll come on to the finances in just a second. But I had this debate on the radio on Monday night, and I'm fascinated by what you two think of this. Are Everton dogs of war or school of science? Can they be both? What do the fans want them to be? What should they be going forward? Really interesting that because I think that the dogs of war thing was a tag from Joe Royal in 1995. School of Science has been around since the 60s. And under Howard Kendall, the absolute halcyon days so far, they were a bit of both. You know, they, they kind of they kind of combine those two qualities yeah. and you know they're they're a club fundamentally from a working class city where you know fans expect like the fans of all clubs, I'm sure. They expect the players to first and foremost work hard, and then on top of that, play attractive, you know, mesmeric at its very best back in the eighties and sixties football. But you're right; it's funny what is Everton's identity, and Sean Dyche kind of touched on that. And I think the pragmatists these days would say, "Well, if you can't be the school of science, then you have to be dogs of war. If it's anything in between, it's not good enough." I think, from my point of view, that the main failing here has been in. A recruitment sense since Mashiri came in. If you go back to the last time Everton were punching above their weight financially and, and in a sporting sense, it was under David Moyes. And there you had a very clear idea of what Everton was as an institution. It was the people's club. It was a, a group of players signed, I would say, that were had been discarded from top clubs, but clearly had potential and weren't utilising that potential. So kind of diamonds in the rough. And there I'm thinking of Stephen Pienaar and Mikel Arteta as two examples. But then also a core below of players signed from the championship, Jolian Lescott, Leighton Baines, Phil Jagielka, who were all on the way up and were ready to make their mark kind of higher up the pyramid. What are Everton now in a recruitment sense? And I suppose that goes back to footballing philosophy. They've they've kind of done a bit of everything, and we've spoken about this before, Mark and Greg, we, we've, we've spoken before about how Carlo Ancelotti's Everton was James Rodriguez, Bernard, Richarlison, players of that ilk. And then you, then very quickly, within the space of a month or two, you shift from Rafa Benitez's Everton, which is Salomon Rondon, Andros Townsend, Damari Gray. And that's just happening now every six to 12 months. So in answer to your question, I don't think anybody knows what Everton are. I'm not entirely sure everybody knows what they should be. But what I do think there is at the football club, I think there's a general sense from most of the people that work there 
that a it's been failing in a sporting sense and maybe in a financial sense too, but that they need to go back to a sustainable model where the majority of their revenue is coming from kind of signing players on the up that can be sold on in the future. So again, think about Brighton, think about Brentford, uh, even think about Leicester before the last few seasons and, and, and doing things that way, effectively becoming a more sustainable football club. Issues of identity, I, I think <laughs> that that depends on who the manager is at any moment in time, and that's the problem. But they have had a sporting director for many years, so arguably, arguably, a sporting director should set the tone for a football club. And I've realised they've gone through a few sporting directors as well, haven't they, Patrick? But the sporting director should be the one that sets the tone for the club, whoever the manager is. And you would have thought you then have a consistency in type of manager when you have to appoint. I mean that. I mean that just hasn't been there at all. No, I, I, I would agree with you, and I, I think there my point would be that you look at what a sporting director model is meant to do, and it's meant to do all the things you suggest. It's meant to implement a clear style of play across the football club, not just first team, but under twenty ones academy, the women's side. There's meant to be a, an ethos and identity for that to work. The sporting director needs to be properly empowered and also needs to have a big say, I would suggest, in the kind of manager that's coming in. But if what happens, as is at Everton, as at Leeds, as at Tottenham, I would argue, if the ownership of the football club gets involved in those big, massive sporting decisions, who the next manager is, which kind of players should be signed, then that vision very quickly becomes muddled and muddied. Uh, that's that's been the case at Everton. They, they've, as I say, the the ownership have often decided the managers, not the the sporting directors. The ownership, even in January, were were trying to sign players that people at Finch Farm at the training ground didn't think Everton could or should sign. That's a football club that's not on the same page. When you say ownership, are we basically talking machinery? I mean, you may not be able to answer that, but I know the whole whole board have got abuse and stick and so on and so forth, and the Everton fans want the board out. But when we talk ownership, are we talking machinery? Yeah, I I think it's important to make that distinction between the ownership and the rest of the hierarchy. So you have Fahad Mashiri there as the majority shareholder. And when I say ownership, I mean that he is making a lot of the big calls. So when Rafa Benitez came in, that was an ownership pick. To be fair, when Frank Lampard came in, that was we were, we were told that was more of a board pick. So when we the board there, that's the chairman, Bill Kenwright, the CEO at the moment, Denise Barrett-Baxendale. And that's the distinction. I would go as far to say that everybody at that level, whether it be the owner or the board, has played a role in this because the division's been muddied. I mean, are Everton, as we were saying earlier, are they the kind of the people's club from North Liverpool who give back to the local community and they're earthy and the kind of dogs of war? Or are they the Hollywood team of James Rodriguez, admittedly faded stars, but James Rodriguez and, and Carlo Ancelotti? That, that, that's on the ownership in, in the main, but also the board of directors too, to, to establish. How simple is it, Greg, to answer the question, why are they struggling financially? <laughs> Not very, <laughs> simply. Um, <laughs> well, perhaps it is. I, I think we probably already touched on it to, to a degree. They, they've they've just simply spent far in excess of, of what they've made commercially. They've now come to a point where they've fallen foul of fa- fair play rules. Um, their cost base in terms of wages is completely unsustainable. And the players, by and large, who've been earning those huge 
wages have not been delivering. So it's just a case of waste, massive monumental waste. I think Fahad Mashiri is probably in this at this point for around £700 million with very little return. I thought Sean Dyche's comments after the game were, he spoke so openly and unguardedly on, on Sunday and he addressed the money point as well going forward and whether or not it's something that you know money will be the answer again. And from what he was saying, you know, he, he doesn't have those conversations yet, but it, it doesn't look like it will be. Money can't be the answer. More money spent in huge amounts can't be the answer to this this situation. I think the the other thing to add here is that you have got an owner in Farhad Mashiri who's had to stretch him, himself incredibly thinly to cover all bases at the club. Not only are they kind of posting heavy losses every season, but they also have everyday running costs. As Greg said, until recently, a very high wage, but even by Premier League standards, it was around seventh or eighth. Now it's now it's more mid-table. But then you've also got a £760 million stadium development while you're going through regression on the pitch. And I think for any one individual, even somebody as wealthy as Mashiri, to, to foot the bill for all of that is, is a really tough ask. And then you bring in external factors like the war in Ukraine. From a, a sponsorship point of view, um, it's meant less money coming into the football club. So all that's had an impact. You've not only got a financial fair play situation, but you've also just got an everyday situation where it's you're trying to cover all bases and pay all the bills on time. And and that's what's happened here. That you, you've kind of had, you've had a football club that's gone stretched itself so far beyond its means. And it's had to drastically reduce costs now over a two, three, four-year period. And that's why the the squad looks the way it is. It does. It's, it's, it's kind of short on quality in some areas. It's short of depth in some areas. When Everton needed signings in January, they couldn't afford them in the main. They, they spent most of the window looking at loans. But then they're also not able to kind of do the other things with contract renewals that they would maybe like. So quality, just just as everybody else is investing, Everton have kind of stopped investing and if anything have cut, cut costs and reduced costs so that they are where you would expect them to be now, I think, in the cycle. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. If they get new investment, how does that help them? Because all these rules are still in place. So would it help them in areas away from transfer markets, such as stadium? redevelopment that's fundamentally what the new investment uh, is 
designed for. It's as Paddy said, you know, the, the machinery spread so thin at the moment. The work continues at pace with the stadium. And thankfully, that's been one thing that hasn't been affected. But he's desperately in, in need of an influx of of money, of liquidity to come in and, and get the stadium built to the next phase and keep it on track for the season after next. So that's why he he what he's been speaking to MSP, why he's speaking to seven 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 partners. And primarily, I think this, this, the money that will come in an investment in its first instance will be for the ground. Now that will also release pressure on Mashiri having to sort of pump prime that himself. And it might allow him to kind of look at putting money back into recruitment to an extent. But then, of course, you have the conundrum that if Everton you know, are found in breach of, of, of the Premier League's financial fair play by the Independent Commission, then it might be a moot point because you know it depends what they if that was to happen what they would decide whether they'd be able to spend money anyway. But even even with this investment, I, I can't see a huge war chest arriving for Sean Dyche in the summer. With that financial fair play issue in the background with the Premier League, what what is the latest on that? When when Greg would they expect a decision on that? And what could be the consequences of that decision? Well, we know that. Other clubs had been keen to get a clear idea of when it was going to happen. There was talk that some clubs wanted Everton's case dealt with by the commission before the end of the season. And we were always told that was unlikely. We always believed that it was more likely to to, to potentially be the summer. I think it's hard, if, if I'm honest, for anyone to know quite when. You only have to look at the example with Man City. It's completely different in in the scale and and, and the sort of volume of charges. One hundred and fifteen is it to one? You would think, therefore, that Everton's might be easier to deal with, and it might be able to be dealt with more quickly. I suppose for some people, it would make sense for it to be done this summer, so everyone knew where they were ahead of next season. Because, of course, if Everton are found to be in breach, the Commission can recommend anything from points deductions to transfer embargoes and things that would have a very real impact on the on Everton spending this summer and going into the next the next window in January as well, I suppose. It's not always very clear either. I mean, that there was very little prior warning before a statement dropped on the Premier League website saying they've referred Everton to this independent commission. That came as a surprise to, to, to people inside the club because they'd been engaged actively in dialogue with the Premier League over an extended period of time in relation to their finances. And I think they'd, the Premier League had even gone as far last season, so 21-22, to reassure other clubs that Everton were OK in terms, in terms of FFP. So quite what's happened in that intervening period, I think that that would have to be the subject of conjecture and speculation. But these things tend to, to be quite opaque procedurally. Wasn't any kind of rationale given on the Premier League website, unlike with City, where you got chapter and verse of exactly what they were meant to have done and when and what rules have been supposedly broken. This was a very simple statement of a couple of lines with Everton. That's why it's it's hard to know when this will drop. Uh, I don't think there's a clear indication yet as, a, as to exactly when it will happen. Everton obviously deny any wrongdoing. They would point to their work with the Premier League. And we've reported before, we even believe it's gone as far as Everton going to the Premier League in advance of signings and cut new contracts, looking for approval for those things so that this is how close the relationship was that's been the kind of the big black cloud in the in the dark cloud in the background throughout this season really certainly the second half of the season 
as other clubs kind of jostle for position and try to put pressure on on not only the Premier League, but also Everton. And I think sometimes the timing of the stories, the timing of the leaks, often it's happened before crucial Premier League games for Everton. And it's almost like, well, kind of what's going on here? Is it is it a case of is it a case of clubs just kind of being a bit being a bit naughty and, and trying to get a message out and and, and try to destabilize at a crucial juncture in the in the season? Last season, I think it was it was Leeds and and Burnley were led to believe that we were applying most pressure, and that was because they were two clubs that stood to 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 kind of lose out if Everton stayed up. Um, Leeds, as soon as they were safe, seemed to kind of scarper into the distance and and drop their um, their interest in proceedings. Will something similar happen this time, albeit with different clubs, whereby the the, the ones that push hardest and the ones that try to apply most pressure are, are those that have been relegated? It's still there to be resolved, and I still think that's a that that that, that is a concern ahead of the new season, particularly given where Everton have been over the last couple of years on the pitch. If we'll park the, the financial fair play, because who who knows what's going, what's going to happen with that, and it will affect it will affect their future and what they do. But mm. if we can just take that out of the equation, the, the final line in the big read on The Athletic on Everton says the desire to see evidence that things can change will only grow stronger. Given all the various things that we talked about and the position that they find themselves in, at this stage, how can they change, Greg? Well, I think what would the fans of calling for more strongly than anything is a change at boardroom level. So they believe that the chairman, Bill Kenwright, and, and the CEO, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, primarily those two, have effectively under you know under-delivered now for a long time. And, and and that it's time for new faces, new ideas, and people who can come in and try and move the club from what they feel is like, you know, kind of seasons upon seasons of mediocrity, you know, interspersed with genuine threat of losing its Premier League status. So that's what they want. The potential for that to happen via a new investment, we understand if it is MSP, the likelihood is they would want their own representation at board level. It does feel like there's a genuine prospect of that now. It does feel like change in that regard is afoot. Paddy and I are waiting, you know, kind of in these weeks and, and, and before the season, pre-season begins. And, you know, I think as soon as the, the prospect investment arrives, we will see a, diff, a very different Everton emerge. And, you know, whether that will be the answer to all their woes, you know, remains to be seen. But as we say in the piece, what can't go on is the dysfunction between the sort of two club Everton almost an Everton built around sort of the live buildings in Merseyside where their administrative HQ is and the CEO and Bill Kenwright affiliated with that, albeit in London. And then the London of the owner, Fard Sherry, sorry, the Everton, I should say, of the owner, Fard Sherry in London, in Monaco, wherever he is. And often there's a, a disconnect between those two camps and, and the communication isn't good enough. And that's leading to some of the bizarre failures in recruitment in, in many other areas of the club. And, and it's probably a big reason why they're in this mess. A new board, though, would have to tell the ownership to back off, wouldn't they? Yeah, the, a new board would have to certainly, would have to come in and perhaps be more robust, perhaps kind of find different ways of managing that schism. It might be that the new board comes in and it's it's completely, <laughs> to use Sean Dyche's favourite word, aligned with Fahd Mashiri. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think the fans are as, are as angry at Mashiri's handling of the club as the boards. Neither has come out of this with much credit. 
but at least there would be a cohesive strand there running the club from the top. It's when you've got these two two groups pulling in different directions, all got different opinions on everything from manager searches to who should be the director of football to what players should be signed, what agents should be used. It's just completely toxic, really. That's that's the stage it's reached for Everton. So you're right, it's not easy fundamentally to tell someone who's the 90-plus percent uh, majority investor to be quiet and stay in his box. Um, that's not, I don't think that's realistic from any board, but uh, surely a better functioning board can manage that situation better than the current one have. Well, you're also there as, as a board of directors, you're there at the behest of the owner. Uh, ultimately, you sit below him in the in the hierarchy of the football club. So you, you can have ideas and thoughts on what needs to happen at the football club. I'm, I'm sure you can tell the owner as he has been told to maybe back off a little bit and leave football to footballing people. But if he's the one putting in all the money, if he's the one making all the appointments, including at boardroom level, then ultimately he's the one that's going to end up with the, with the final say. So I don't, I don't think it's purely as simple as as kind of removing a board and, and putting in one that kind of machinery is happy with and more aligned with, if you want to use that kind of Sean Dyche expression, alignment again. That would also raise questions as to whether machinery was the right man, I suppose, to kick this project on. There's a lot of evidence that, that puts that in doubt too. Um, whatever to need is a strong leadership. They need people challenging regressive views and, and, and kind of regressive kind of methods and ways of doing things. Is this under Sean Dyche at a team level? Because actually... There'll be a lot of people who may be surprised by this. There may not be if they've heard us interview Sean Dyche before. But Sean Dyche is a very progressive manager. You only have to look at what he put in place at Burnley and their training ground facilities and so on and so forth. So actually, if you want progressive rather than regressive, you probably start with Sean Dyche as your first team manager. Yeah, I also think it would help Everton if or to have a presence like Sean Dyche, that strong presence, who is not scared to speak truth to power, and might say, "Well, look, this this is ludicrous. This idea of kind of what you want to do in the transfer market or whatever else." Again, that goes back to what some of the stuff he was saying after the game, where he was talking about realism. He was talking about getting back to the kind of the fundamentals for Everton. So I think on that side, it, it helps to have a figure like him there because I, I don't think he will just be a patsy. I think he will want to shape things and he'll want to have his say and he'll want to push back if things aren't right. The other thing here is that for too long, Everton have gone from one manager to another and one playing style to another. And I think even with Lampard, the reason he part of the reason he got more time was because there was a sense inside the club that they needed some stability. They needed somebody to build over the course of two, three years, get a blueprint in place, get a way of playing, get a squad that is suited to those methods. And they've not been able to do that because there's been such regular change and, and flux. So kind of the, the success of Daesh is, is fundamental now because he's the one that doesn't have vast sums of money, is going to need to manage upwards with the owner and the board, whoever they may be. Um, and he's also going to have to make sure that on the, on the pitch, Everton move clear of relegation at a fundamental period when they're building a new stadium. If money is tight, are they smart enough to manoeuvre the transfer market. I mean, look, as soon as anybody talks about being smart in the transfer market, people mention Brighton, Brentford. Are they smart enough? Is the structure in place to be able to go and sign someone from Paraguay for 9 million quid or Japan for 5 million quid, Greg? There's big question marks over that, Chappers. You have to look at what 
forget what, what recruitment has been before Kevin Thelwell almost, and look what he's done so far in a very limited time. And there have been signs that he's uh, he thinks differently, he thinks maybe more along the lines of, of the people make the de- making the decisions of those clubs you mentioned who obviously been very successful models. We understand that he, you know, he is more open to kind of the, the data-led model that has again has proven, you know, plucking players from South America and Japan and players that people Premier League sports haven't heard of would come over and be fantastic successes. Amadou Onana was has arguably been one of the better young midfielders in the Premier League this season, and probably going to be a lot of interest in him in the summer. Everton could potentially make a profit on him, which Paddy said earlier is something that they, just, that they haven't done enough. I think they'd have to hold their hands up this recruitment team under Kevin Thelwell and say they got it badly wrong with Neil Mopé. I, I would like to hope that Thelwell, as like Sean Dyche, gets the benefit of the doubt, given what they've been the, the sort of constraints they've been working on, and has at least earned the right to prove that they can be shrewder and you know smarter. I think the only smart thing, aside from recruitment wise, everything's done. I was speaking to someone. I was walking away from the ground on Sunday, still in a bit of a daze, and they were saying Everton had knocked back Amazon and various broadcasters from wanting to do the behind the scenes documentaries. And I think that's probably one of the only smart calls they made in the past eighteen months because that you forget about the Man City, forget about the Tottenham, and a genuinely inside Everton documentary would have just kind of been a, a complete ratings winner for all the wrong reasons. So let's hope that behind. That Kevin Thelwell's office and the people who make the decisions on players this summer, it can be quite smooth. Players can arrive. They're not going to spend big, but they can get players, like Paddy said earlier, who add value, maybe, you know, diamonds from the rough elsewhere or young players who who are on the start of that kind of rise to elite level, just like Brighton have done, and Everton can finally kick on. Where are they at with their academy at the moment? And players coming and players coming through their academy. You go back five years, they're Hang on, what was it at the time? We were, I think we were in under-23s at the time. Under-23s were all conquering, yep. weren't they? They won the Premier League 2 title twice in three years under David Unsworth. Unsworth's no longer there. And a lot of the players in those teams are now, I'd say, Championship League 1 level, struggling to come through. And you look at Kieran Dowell, who's just joined Rangers from, from Norwich on a free transfer. One of the success stories, albeit not 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 at Everton, Anthony Robinson at Fulham. The irony at the time was that he saw his path to the first team blocked by Luca Dean and Leighton Baines, but now would walk into that Everton side at left back. So the criticism, I think, from the fans, and a, a fair point, I think, is that not enough of that crop managed to make it through for Everton to take benefit and, and for them to be first team players. I suppose Thelwell, it, it's always difficult to find accountability when it comes to recruitment because there's so many influences. But the clearest sense that things have changed at the football club and the Thelwell is in the academy, where there have been lots of new appointments, lots of new roles created in development. They've got a, bizarrely, they didn't have a loans manager, a loan pathways manager, but they appointed one of those. So they are trying, I think, to to go to it towards a development and recruit early model where they where they kind of get their own players and sell them on. It needs buy-in from the top. It needs buy-in from Daesh. And that remains to be seen whether they get that buy-in all the time from Daesh. But it's still not where it needs to be. And it, it's not like there's going to be three, four, five players that can come in for next season and make a, make a massive impact. There are a couple. Uh, Tom Cannon had a very successful loan at Preston. And has just been called up to the Republic of Ireland squad. He's he's a good prospect, I think. Uh, Ellis Sims has been involved in the squad this season. Uh, Danny Mills' lad, Stan, 
had a very productive season on the right wing. There is some talent there, but whether or not it's going to be enough to make the difference next season, I think I think that might, that might be a bit of a stretch. I think we broke last week or the week before last that they also faced the challenge that because of this managerial churn, a manager's coming in under hugely high pressure stakes when another one's been sacked and there's been you know a crisis. They've been reluctant to use younger players as much, and therefore the pathway is looking blocked. So you you're losing genuinely talented players like Isaac Price, who are deciding not to you know sign terms with Everton and, and leave and go. I think he's joined uh, Standard Liège in Belgium. You know, a, a player that Everton absolutely loathe to lose, and there's lots of interest in him about other clubs. And so the academy is definitely something that they need to get back on track as well, because and this is the Everton that produced some monumental talents in terms of Wayne Rooney and then I suppose lesser, but, you know, gifted players like Ross Barkley and um, so on and so forth, Anthony Gordon over the years. Final one, final season at Goodison, next season. Do you just envisage more of the same? I think we have to be careful calling it the final season at Goodison because while the stadium development is pencilled in for 24-25, there's no definitive date yet for that move in. And it may well be that Everton spend at least part of the season after playing at Goodison until it's absolutely ready. It's not just the building of the thing. They also need to host test events and scale up the test events over over a period of time. So that that move in date may may not be the start of the start of the twenty four twenty five season. If it were to be the final season at Goodison, I, I suppose the main thing from an Everton perspective is that the the memory of Goodison isn't sullied by relegation. And I suppose that feeds into your question: Can they get out of this? And can they can they make the smart decisions to move up the table? I'd be cautiously optimistic that they can do for a couple of reasons. The the first is that you have teams coming up in, I'd say, Luton and Sheffield United, that aren't going to have the spending power of Nottingham Forest, Bournemouth and Fulham. That would be my guess um, if I was looking at those clubs financially. So I think there'll be a pool of clubs that are more obvious relegation contenders next season. But I also think even if Everton sold, let's say, for example, Onana, Onana's not as crucial to this Everton side as Richarlison was the season before. I don't think he is irreplaceable. And there's, there's a way you look at this with smart recruitment, where somebody like him goes and then resources are allocated to improve the areas that are in real need of development uh, and reinforcement. So a lot of this is going to hinge on whether they can fix the attack and a lot of it, whether they can reduce the reliance on Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's been injured for, for much of the last two seasons. I think 34 goals in 38 games this season for Everton and five of them came in one game against Brighton. It's very low. Very, very low. So Everton know they need to, to sign forwards, and I'd say forwards plural, in, in my opinion, to push them up the table. And I think next season, a lot of the success or failure will hinge on how, how they do there, whether they're able to get the players in, the firepower in to, to make sure they have kind of a comfortable season in, in lower mid-table. Greg, final one? Uh, it just makes me laugh when Everton's kind of, um, like genuinely, Everton's kind of part of their hopes is that there are going to be three teams that are potentially worse and, and can spend less debatable on the latter but yeah you'd like to hope on the first um i think a lot of this just to come back to what i was saying at the start of this podcast was a lot of this is going to rest on things in their control and in their control is stability for now and sean dyche um you know he some of the fans have been undecided about whether dyche you know, was the man even right up until the last few weeks of the season but i think that he's earned his right to remain the everton manager and i think 
you know, if you if you speak about what Paddy was saying at the top of this show as well about the kind of the the most recent success has been under David Moyes, a pragmatist. So on, you know, he may, he may kind of not always be all singing or dancing. He he, he may not um, be a very polished performer in press conferences, but he knows how to get a tune out of limited players, and then he knows potentially how to add quality to those players. Like he he proved that Burnley at their best. Um, so maybe finally they found the right man for the right time at Everton and under him if the board give him at least something and the fans give him time there can be signs of progress on the pitch next season and uh, let's hope that everything off the pitch is just as Jordan Pickford said a little bit smoother next season not stressful we will uh, we will end it there. Hope you both managed to get some rest at some point. Uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic for £1.99 uh, a month for the first 12 months by going to theathletic.com uh, slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.